Well, good morning. I'm not Jordan. <laughs> uh, Jordan has uh, had a family wedding this weekend, and so my name is Tom Ellenbass, and I'm with you today. Uh, I work with Harbor Churches, and I kind of work with, I'm the senior pastor of Harbor Churches, so I work with all the different pastors in the different churches, and uh, blessed to be with you again. Uh, Jordan has invited me to, to preach here every once in a while, and so it's glad to get to know you uh, more deeply, and if there's uh, any, any of you would like to connect, I would love to connect after the service, or even uh, sometime during the week if you'd love a cup of coffee or you want to follow up or learn more about just what we're doing throughout Harbor Churches. Um, This morning, uh, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. If you uh, have a phone or you want to follow along, we'll have the uh, scripture up on the screen, so you don't uh, need to get on there. But if you want to, we're in Genesis 21 today, um, and we'll be looking at some interesting stories, I think, in there. I I like to read novels. Any novel readers here? A few. Uh, I don't get to read them very often, but I like to read novels, uh, either historical fiction or actual autobiography or, or actual novels. I love them because they're about people, right? And they, there's really good character development often. And there's a, if you get into a good novel or a good autobiography, you, you begin to, to really connect with people in the book, right? You begin to either see your life in their character or you... Um, you recognize something that's happening in emotion, and you get drawn in. And it's not just books, right? Uh, that's what we love about so many movies, especially those ones that capture reality and they pull us in. And next thing you know, you're you're not in a movie anymore. You're kind of, uh, you're kind of you're in it, right? Like you're you're feeling it. You're connected to it. Well, the Bible, I think we often miss that the Bible is a story about real people. It's a story about real people, like a. Uh, like like an autobiography is, or a really good novel. It's a story of real people and real life problems and real life tensions. Right. Um, the reason I like the Bible and I like novels and those kind of things is because my life is filled with tension too. My life is filled with problems. Um, my life is filled with questions and issues and uh, a lot of character development. And my life's not perfect. And there are things that happen and I don't know what the next step is. And I don't know how to respond. And I encounter real problems. I imagine you do too. The, the faith life, our, our encounter with God, happens inside these walls, right? But most of it actually happens outside these walls. It happens in our everyday life, in our work life, in our home life, in our parenting, in our marriage, in our friendships, uh, in all the things that we put our hands to for the other hours of the week that we spend out, outside of here. Um, in fact, faith, uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes we confine faith to sacred places like this. Maybe we consider this a sacred place. Uh, maybe you have some other sacred places in your life. But the reality is that the sacred comes alive in the secular places more often. The place where we really encounter real life. It's in those places that we really do wrestle with God. And it's in those places, interestingly, as we go through the book of Genesis. If you're new to, uh, to, uh, to Wyoming Harbor this morning, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, and we're in it all year. Well, almost all year. 40, 40 weeks. That's most of the year. Uh, and the interesting thing about the book of Genesis, I think, is, I mean, it is the it is the beginning book of the Bible. It's the original narrative, and it all happens in real life. It doesn't happen in sanctuaries. It doesn't happen in synagogues. It doesn't happen in temples. I mean, that stuff comes later in the Bible. But even later in the Bible, those are not the central part of faith. The central part of faith happens when we get up in the morning 
and in all the things in between getting up and going to bed at night. It happens probably while we're sleeping too, but we just don't notice it. So I want to jump into Genesis chapter 21 uh, this morning, and I want to get into some real-life stuff here. We're going to pay attention to, to the life of Sarah this morning, and I want, like a good novel, uh, my goal today is to, to help you to connect with the character and to connect your real life with the real life of Sarah. So let's just read through this a little bit. It's just a few verses. Uh, I think we're like maybe eight verses or so. Um, then we're going to read seven or eight verses this morning uh, from Genesis chapter 21. Uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about the passages around it. But now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Sarah, if, you, if you've not been with us, Sarah is Abram's wife. Uh, Abram was called out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he went to a place called Haran with his family. And then God called him out of Haran uh, to go to what we know as the promised land, uh, the place where Abram and Sarah would be blessed with children, and they would have generations, and there's all these promises. Okay, so this is this Sarah. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant. And bore a son to Abram in his old age. Now, Sarah, uh, if you go back in the story, again, if you haven't been with us, if you go back in the story, when they left Ur of the Chaldeans, when Abram and Sarah were still young, she was described at that moment as barren. That they had tried and tried, but they weren't able to have children. This is years and years ago. Um, and so God had made some promises, we'll get into that a little bit, that they would eventually be, that Abram and Sarah would be the father and mother of many, many, many generations of all the peoples. And, uh, and yet they've still been barren all these years. And, um, and I, I'm using the word barren because that's the biblical word. Uh, if you have been unable to conceive, that, that word probably hurts a little bit. And, but we're going to use that biblical word this morning. So finally, uh, this is a long time coming, Sarah's pregnant. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age at the very time God had promised them, or him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let me have you go back a slide. Uh, okay, so in the middle there, Abraham gave the name Isaac. If you, uh, if you're in, if you have a Bible in front of you, um, there's, a, there's a little uh, footnote there. And the footnote is that the word Isaac, Yitzhak in the Hebrew, means he laughs or to laugh or laughing, right? Okay, so the word Isaac means laughing. Now you go to, uh, go to the next slide again, to the very end of that passage. Sarah said, God has brought me Yitzhak. There's a little play on words there, right? God has brought me Isaac. God has brought me laughter, right? God has brought me Yitzhak. And everyone who hears about this will Yitzhak with me. It's kind of an interesting little, little piece there. And I bring that up because I want to talk a little bit about that uh, uh, today. I, I love that the Bible is um, not just character development and narrative and all these stories that we can relate to, but I also love how creative the Bible is. Hopefully you hear this through uh, some of the messages that are preached. Uh, the writers of the Bible... 
um, are inspired by God, and they use this creative expression, and there's so much in there. Uh, there's so much. I mean, we try to share some things that we see in there as we're studying the Bible. I hope you see a lot of those things as you're reading, too, and so many of the things we don't see. It's why, you know, I'm 51 now, and every time I open it up, I see something new, even though I've read these stories so many times. Um, the Bible um, is literature. It's poetry. And the story isn't merely told in bland, like, factual recitation, right? It's not, it's not a history book. It has history in it, but it's not written like a history book. Um, it's not written like a rule book. It has rules in it. Uh, there are some do this, don't do that, right? But the whole book is not do this, don't do that. Those are embedded in stories, in narratives, in poetry. The Bible is written as narrative poetry, poetry even post-apocalyptic prophecy, right? Like Netflix doesn't have the corner on post-apocalyptic. It was in the, in the Bible first. Uh, last time I was here, I, I showed you a poem I forget which chapter we were in at the time uh, because I find a lot of poetry in, in, in the scripture. And often, because I'm digging into the Hebrew, I can see it a little bit where uh, you might not naturally see it. By the way, there are lots of tools out there. You don't have to know Hebrew to go in and see this stuff. You can uh, find a lot of it on, um, on, on the internet. Uh, you can find the Hebrew there and look at it. Um, I showed you a poem last time. I want to show you a, a poem again. And the poem, let me read to you first uh, kind of how I, I see how it's actually read, and then I'll give you kind of a little bit of a translation here. Yahweh visited Sarah, as he said, and did Yahweh for Sarah, as he said. That's kind of the little, literal way you translate it. Let me say it again. Yahweh visited Sarah, as he said, and did Yahweh for Sarah, as he said. Here's how it kind of translates a little easier to read for us. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did, go back, for, did for Sarah what he had spoken. Okay? Actually, the word said is two different words for said, which is why I kind of translated it here a little bit different. Uh, he's making a point. The Lord, Sarah, what God said. The Lord, Sarah, he did what he said. It's a little bit of a, kind of a, little couplet there, of a, a, little, um, a little poem. Why do, why do I show you that? Because I want, I, want to, uh, I want to show you something that kind of comes out of this little poem. There's uh, one little word there. So the Lord visited Sarah, and then the Lord did for Sarah. The word visited is the Hebrew word pakad. It means, uh, it's often translated to visit. But it's more than that. It's to visit, it has a specific quality to it, this visiting. And the word pakat is used in two radically different ways. It's, uh, let me put it this way. It's visiting in grace and goodness. And it's visiting in violence. Or in judgment. Or in punishment. The same word, right? So depending how you use it, the visit is either grace and goodness and wonder and beauty and all these things. Or it's violence and punishment and difficulty. And God visited Sarah. Which one is it? Well, it's the, it's the grace and, and goodness in this, in this moment, right? Uh, the, the idea here is, I think, this word pakad, is, it's, it's that God comes close. Now, let me talk about why I think that's important. I think it's true, or maybe I'll ask you the question, isn't it true, that some of the greatest grace and beauty in our lives comes from when people come up close to us. It's when we experience love, right? When we experience grace, when we experience wonder. Where does the greatest violence come from? It comes often from someone who visits us who's close. 
Who can hurt you the most? Is it somebody who you don't care about who's far off from you? Or is it the people who are the closest to you? Think about intimacy for a moment. This is is actually a, a little poem about the intimacy of God. God comes close to Sarah. And it's those people, God is a person, God is persons, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God comes close to Sarah, and there's the opportunity for grace and goodness, and there's the opportunity to get hurt. You you know this, don't you? We guard our hearts because we don't want to get too close to someone because they can hurt us. That's what love is about, isn't it? When you give your heart and you give your life and you give love to someone, you give over the opportunity for them to hurt you. Those who are closest to us can hurt us the most. So there's something really interesting about God coming close here and visiting Sarah. And it ends up on this side, but I want to peel back the layers of that a little bit. We're starting a new series this week. So we've taken Genesis and we've broken it up into a bunch of small series. Okay, so five, six, four weeks, something like that. We're starting a new one today. And uh, we're going to be talking about trauma. We're going to be focusing on uh, the life of Isaac. Um, but we're starting with Sarah, who bears Isaac. We're starting with, with Isaac before he's even born, and he's in the womb for Sarah. We're starting there, and we're going to talk about kind of family trauma. There's a whole bunch of family trauma that happens here in this story. Again, we relate with the Bible because it's like our life. There's trauma in the family of Abram and Sarah, and there's trauma in our families too because we come close to one another. So today, I want, to, I want to talk about Sarah's trauma at the, beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of this series. So that's the backdrop. God comes close. God visits. Is that good or is that bad? In, in, in this case, it seems like it's, it's good. In the, in the little poem, we're reminded that God keeps his word. In fact, uh, if you have an NIV, I didn't look at a bunch of other translations, but the NIV translated that God kept his promises. Uh, it says that he, the, the actual Hebrew says that he did what he said. Right? And if you do what you say you, are, say you do, that, that's fulfilling your promises. God fulfills his promises. And, and the writer wants to make sure that we see that God's coming close here is a good thing. It's not the violent thing. It's, it's, the, it's the good thing. And, uh, and, it, and it, it, there's almost like this reporting that happens. Right? So there's a little poem that I showed you. And then there's kind of reporting that goes like this. It says, Sarah became pregnant. She bore Abram uh, a son named Isaac. When he was eight days old, they circumcised him. It's kind of a uh, dedication to baptism. It's a, we're giving this child back to God. We're naming him. It says that uh, he was named by Abram, and, and Abraham was given that name by God. Uh, and, then, and then it says that Abraham was 100 years old. So it's kind of like God came close, and this happened. And here's all the good things that happened. All the promises were kept. There's kind of a reporting. How did God come close? Well, Sarah became pregnant. Abraham was given a son. And then after that, so you've got this little poem. You've got this reporting of how it's good, right? God did what he said he was going to do. Here's what he did. And then, it, and then it goes to the verse I read to you a minute ago. God has brought me laughter. And all those who hear it will laugh with me. Now, if you've been with us in Genesis or you know Genesis, that word laughter should trigger something. It should trigger another story to you because we've heard about Sarah and laughter before. 
And I love the development of the story. This is why you can't read your Bible just in snippets and you can't just read one passage at a time because it opens up into the broader story and narrative of the character development. So let me give you a little bit of background on where this comes from. I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis 11. Genesis 11 tells us that when Terah and his family, Abram's father, left Ur of the Chaldeans, that Sarai, which was her name then, was childless or she was barren. We don't know how old they were at that time, but they were younger. They were, they were um, you know, probably in their 20s, 30s, somewhere in there. Old enough to have tried long enough that they knew that she wasn't going to have a child. That she had been now named the childless wife of Abram. She's referred to that way, referred to that way in the beginning of the story. Terah leaves Ur of the Chaldeans with his family, lists his family, and Sarah, the one who was barren and married to Abram. That's how she's defined, in a sense, by the Bible originally. Nice, huh? How'd you like to be introduced that way? For all of eternity in the Bible, right? She's the one that couldn't have kids. That's Genesis 11. Genesis 12, we continue the story. God comes to Abraham, and he promises Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. God makes a bold claim. Because at that point, in Genesis 12, Abram's a little older now. He's 75 years old. 75 years old that God comes to him and he doesn't have children and he says, you will be the father of many nations. Okay, move on. Next passage, Genesis 17. Verse 19 says this, Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. At that point, it's 24 years later after the first promise. Genesis 17, he's 99 years old. Are you following the trajectory here? When they're young, they can't have children. They're in their 20s, 30s-ish. They've been trying for a while. She gets labeled as the one who's childless. They leave. They move all the way to Haran. They, they move into the promised land. God promises at 75 years old, so probably 50 years later, he promises Abram, you're going to... You're going to have a son, and you're going to be the father of many nations. 24 years after that, he says, this time next year, Sarah will be pregnant and will have a son. At that point, Sarah's not in the room. She's in the other room. Now, their houses are very small at the time, and Sarah overhears the conversation. Sarah is 98, no, 89 years old. Abram's 99. She overhears this promise. How many years now has she suffered with not having children and wanting them? And she laughs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm going to be pregnant at 89? Come on. Laughter can mean lots of things, can't it? The laughter at this point in her life is kind of a, a scoffing laughter. Abraham and Sarah were very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? 89. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At that point, I'm probably going, Eh, maybe. (laughs) If I'm Sarah... And he says, I will return to you at the point in time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. <laughs> but he said, yeah, you did. You laughed. 
You don't believe me, do you? I, I wonder if there's a time in your life where you heard promises of God and you were like, come on, I don't think so. I don't believe you anymore. Think about this. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. God comes to him at 99. Isaac is born the next year. He's 100 years old. So this happens. The first promise when he's 75, after all these years of being without children, there's a, there's a psalm, Psalm uh, 126, that says uh, that God can turn your grief into joy and your tears into laughter. But here's my question this morning. What happens when you're already past tears? What if you've already moved in the grieving place where you've gone way past tears? What if your expectations have grown so cold that you've passed the point of even having a little hope left? You've passed the point of holding on to hope by a thread. You've passed the point of even putting your hope in other people who can have faith for you. You've moved to a place of no hope, to a place of grieving and tears, but then to a place beyond grieving and tears, to a place of bitterness, resentment, and the scoffing laughter of disbelief and disdain. Have you ever been there? Now, maybe you've not been where Sarah has, right? She's a young girl. She gets married. She's excited. They're going to have a family. They try, they try, they try, they try, they try, they try. Nothing. Now she's become labeled as the childless one. She can't give her husband an heir to the family. Fifty years later, God makes a promise to Abraham. 25 years after that, 24 years after that, all these years, maybe 75 years of grieving for Sarah. Do you th- how much hope do you think she had left in her cup? I've been a pastor now for 30 years, um, and I've unfortunately seen people of hope battered uh, by life. People who started out hopeful and excited and joyful, but battered by life whose cup of hope slowly diminishes to just a very little bit in the bottom of the cup. I've seen people with just a little hope, barely enough to survive, hit again so that the threadbare, bare-knuckled grass that they've had on hope just let go. I'm sure you've known people that I... It's not just pastors who experience this. You've experienced it. You know people who've been there. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Puerto Rico. Um, we have uh, missionary partners in Puerto Rico, and I've learned a lot more about Puerto Rico in our, in our time connected with them. Um, in August of 2017, you might remember this, um, Hurricane Irma came through Puerto Rico. It was a Category 5 hurricane. Um, and it hit, uh, I don't know exactly when it hit Puerto Rico, but it, kind of the storm took off around um, August 30. Um, about 17 days later, a second Category 5 hurricane came through, and everybody forgot about Irma, which caused all this damage. Then another one that you may know more about, called Maria, came through and hit Puerto Rico and was devastating. Uh, CNN reported it uh, with this headline, Maria Pummels Puerto Rico. Think of the visual of that, right? Someone pummeling. Puerto Rico was pummeled. This, this one-two punch of Irma and then Maria is regarded today as the worst natural disaster in recorded history to affect those islands. 
Uh, and, and if you remember, our response as a country wasn't super great. Uh, honestly, if you know people down there, they'll say it's still not great. There are still places uh, devastated and without power, and they've decided not even to rebuild some of this stuff. The total cost estimate was $132 billion over 10 years. Um, so let me ask you this question. How do you think that the Puerto Ricans felt this fall in September when they heard that Hurricane Fiona was just offshore and was gathering strength and heading towards Puerto Rico. We heard a lot about it hitting Florida, right? But imagine what it felt like to the Puerto Ricans. It was just five years ago that they were double hit by these two hurricanes. Listen to the words of our partner pastor. His name's Jonathan. Some of you might know him. Um, I texted him uh, last September when Fiona was coming through and just said, hey, we're, we're praying for you and thinking about you. And he said, uh, this is just what we need, prayers and friends. Everyone is asking me what to do next, but I'm not totally clear. I am not the same full of energy leader that I was in Maria. This is not near Maria, but I see a lot of PTSD in all of us. We need to be filled by grace and hope once again. Trauma, right? We've been hit. And we had some hope, and then we got hit again, and then we had a little hope, and then we got hit again, and we were threadbare hope, and then we got hit again, and we got pummeled, and now we have no hope, and now we've moved to the place where we don't dare trust or have any hope anymore, and we're moving to the place of bitterness and regret when we're hit to the point that our cup of hope is almost empty. And then we're hit again so that we lose hope, and we depend on the hope of our friends or our family or our church, and then maybe we get hit again. It's hard to recapture hope, isn't it? And that PTSD that Jonathan talked about, that trauma is real in your life and in mine if you've been hit and you've been hit and you've been hit and you've had it because you've been pummeled and it's been too much. When we begin to think about the story that way, can you feel what Sarah was feeling? Can you understand why she had scoffing laughter at the age of 75? No, at the age of 89. By the time that God promises Abraham a child in Genesis 12, he's 75 years old. And what's interesting is if you go back to that story, I I don't think he told Sarah. There's no mention of Sarah hearing in that story, um, Genesis 12, in which God is telling Abraham. He gets this Uh, good news, I think, this good promise. But maybe he held it back because it was just too much. Think of this line. Great expectations can so easily lead to even greater disappointments. Don't you think probably at 75, after 50 years of not being able to bear children, that when Abraham hears this promise, he has some faith? How Abraham had faith, I don't know. But maybe this is why Abraham has always talked about is such an amazing, extraordinary person of faith. But maybe he doesn't tell Sarah because he's trying to protect her because she's already been battered from years of hoping and losing and hoping and losing and hoping and wanting and then being remembered in her family as the barren woman who married Abram. So my guess is that he doesn't tell her because when you hear an extraordinary promise during a time of extraordinary pain and your hope and trust in the future is all but gone, the promise of a miracle is almost too much to bear. And it's really hard to jump into hope then. And sometimes it can even add to the sourness of the already developing bitterness and resentment that we've given into. 50 years, likely, of not conceiving. I, I wonder, 
When do you stop trying? When do you stop trying? Can you imagine Abraham here? Maybe they'd already stopped trying. Now Abram gets the promise. They're 75. Hey, hon, how about we try and have a kid again? (laughs) Or now they're 99 and 89 and they hear the promise again, right? Next year you'll be pregnant. Okay, I guess we need to try. Can you imagine what she's feeling? Then as the story continues, Sarah finds out about the promise because she overhears the conversation Abraham's having with God or the angels in Genesis 17. And by that point, she's moved to the place of bitterness. And you, you can understand when you dig into the story, can't you? How is it? How is it that Abraham has this radical faith? We can understand how Sarah doesn't. I can. I, I think you can too. How on earth does Abraham have this radical faith after all the punches and all the promises and all the missed opportunities? At some point, Sarah stopped believing. At some point, Sarah stopped trusting. At some point, Sarah lost her faith. I I don't know when it was, but at some point it happened. Well, Hagar, (laughs) slave of Abram, who he had uh, another child with because they didn't believe in the promises, right? Well, maybe maybe God's not going to come through on his promises, so we'll just, we'll figure this out. We'll have a baby with the slave, Hagar, right? Well, then there's fighting between Hagar and Sarah, and, and Hagar is sent into the desert, and God meets Hagar there, and she said, and God talks to her and promises her, and she calls God by name, and she names him the God who sees me. What does, what does Sarah name God? <laughs> no, we're not told. But the closeness of God to Hagar and the closeness that could have been there between Sarah and God has now felt like violence in the intimacy of her relationship with God. Trusting intimacy with God for Sarah has brought her only tears and pain up to this point. And at some point, the God who renamed Sarah, uh, God became the one that she holds at arm's length in, I think, justifiable mistrust. And then this, who promises a barren woman a child and then doesn't deliver? That's how she's got to feel. That just feels mean to her, I imagine. Deep, difficult emotions. Then something changes. Well, let me give you one other, one other thing, then we'll go to the change. One other last aside. Um, this is in chapter 20, the chapter right before this. Let's read this passage. This is 20, verse 17 and 18. Abram prayed to God. He's interacting with another king named Abimelech. And uh, there's a lot of things that happen. And uh, Abimelech and his whole uh, family and people were cursed because Abram and Sarah lied to him. And so they were not able to conceive children during that period because of the lies. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So not only is Sarah the barren one, but because they lie in this relationship with Abimelech, you can go back and read the whole story, um, all of their wives and slaves are barren. And Abraham prays that they will conceive. And they do. (laughs) 
What about Sarah? How many years had they been praying together? Had Abraham prayed for Sarah? I'm sure he had. Adds insult to injury. Okay, so now the turn. Then in our passage today, Sarah gets postmenopausally pregnant in a miraculous, unbelievable moment. Uh, I almost want to pause the story between verses 5 and 6 because the distance between bitterness and rejoicing is rarely such a quick turn. And my guess is it wasn't a quick turn for Sarah either. The, The distance between bitterness and rejoicing here happens in a very short moment. But I bet it didn't happen short for her. I imagine the emotional distance between the bitterness of decades-old scornful laughter and the sweet joy of a mother's delight is much longer than the distance between two short verses in the Bible. There's a lot of emotional baggage right in between those two verses. Imagine what she must have felt now. Imagine those early tenuous days when she finds out that she's pregnant. Imagine the worry of a miscarriage. After all these years of not being able to carry a child, now having this tender child and worrying about a miscarriage. Imagine the morning sickness and and the motherly glow at 90 years old. (laughs) Imagine those first moments feeling the movement of a heel or an elbow. As the child, Isaac, this child of expectation slowly grows in his mother's womb slowly hope too begins to grow. You see, we see it in verses 5 and 6, but she had months, months of wrestling with this. That hope that is likely more vulnerable than the child growing in her womb begins to grow. Grief begins to heal and turn to joy. The once hot anger that turned to smoldering even hotter coals now begins to cool and soften. The bitter root of disappointment turn to resentment, starts to sweeten and lose its toxic edge. And laughter, scornful, disdainful laughter, turns to laughter. But this time a very different kind of laughter. Like a surprise, I can't believe this happened, laughter. And then that phrase in verse 6, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. I hope you're catching the humanity of all this. This is a deep story that goes, that goes from death to resurrection. There's so much depth in this moment. Remember the word laughter, the word Isaac. God has brought me Isaac. And everyone who hears about Isaac will laugh with me. It's an incredible turning point in Sarah's life. Not just because she got pregnant, but there's a faith turning point here. God, remember that little poem? Pakad, God visits. God comes up close. And this time, God comes up close in a way that changes everything. And then she doesn't keep it to herself. She says, everybody will laugh with me. There's a witness to this. God has met me and I'm going to share that with everyone else. So let me just, uh, I'm going to close here with a kind of a, couple questions uh, to end with. I want to ask you, first of all, to go back to the beginning and talk about uh, relating with novels and relating with movies and those kind of things. My question is, where do you relate this morning? Are you in a place where you've been hopeless for a long time? Because you've been beaten and battered over and over again? 
And you've hoped and then you've lost hope and then you've hoped and then you've lost hope and then you decided you weren't going to hope anymore because hoping did too much violence to your soul and you won't let God close anymore. Maybe, maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe God has promised you something and it just doesn't seem real and you just don't know if you can trust him. You don't know if you can trust him. Because you've kept him at a distance for so long, he's no longer close. And it's hard to trust someone that's not close. Or maybe you're at the point where God has miraculously shown you his favor and he has met his promises and he did what he said he was going to do. And now it's time to laugh and rejoice. And not just laugh and rejoice, but share it with other people and witness to the goodness and the faith of God. Because other people need to see that promises of God come true. I want you to locate yourself this morning. Where are you in the story? Where have you been? And then let me ask these questions. First of all, this. Have you allowed God to get close enough to hurt you or to help you? It's dangerous, I know, to let God come close. But if you keep him at an arm's length, you may not experience his breakthrough promises either. There's a point where Sarah had to, had to move forward and trust God with the promises. Second question is this, has your hope turned to bitterness because you cannot fathom God's timing or God's plans? There's no way to fathom the, the timing or God's plans in the story of Sarah and Abram. There's no way. Abram kept the faith. Sarah did not. I've read this story hundreds of times and I still don't understand why God waited so long. And why questions rarely ever get answered. <laughs> That's why they call it faith. Um, last question is this. Um, when God has answered, have you invited others to rejoice with you? You see, when God has turned your bitterness to sweetness, your tears into laughter, and answered your long-awaited prayers, have you invited others to rejoice with you? There's an invitation here to let the God who speaks, the God who makes promises, the God who offers hope to come close to not only you but to other people. It's true, there's a danger in that. But if you trust him, if you put your faith in him, then God lets you down, he's gotten close enough to hurt you. But if you never let him close, you'll never let him in. And if you never let him in, you'll never experience the intimacy of his grace that he has for you. I believe that God fulfills his promises. I believe it. Sometimes not in my timing, sometimes not in your timing. Sometimes not in the way that we would expect. But the story shows us two characters. Abram, who trusted and had faith and is known as the father and founder of our faith. Sarah, who got there, but she went through the bitter road of resentment first. It's a choice we get to make, and it's a difficult choice, but I want to encourage you to choose trust, to choose to allow God to come close. And then when he does fulfill your promises, to share it with the world. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray specifically this morning for those who uh, are experiencing the pummeling uh, of life situations in which uh, hope has moved to hopelessness and maybe moved to bitterness and to resentment. God, we've all been there in some place in our life. And uh, God, I pray that in that hopeless place of despair, in that place of darkness in which we feel alone and we don't want anyone to come close, God, we pray that you would visit us there, that we would experience your promises, that we would trust your promises, 
But not only that, that we experience you fulfill your promises and give us grace. So for those of us who are in the hopeless place, God, would you meet us? And would we put down our arm that's keeping you at arm's length and let you come close? God, for those of us for whom you have promised and we're, we're, excited, to, we're excited to hope, but we're scared. God, would you help us to trust you, to put our fear aside and to take a, a step into faith, a step that might seem ridiculous given the past. But that's what promises are. Promises are ridiculous. They're ridiculously beautiful and ridiculously graceful. And God, we take stories like Sarah and Abraham's and so many stories, stories that are in this room, stories in which you've been ridiculously gracious, in which you've, as the poem says, you've done what you said you would do. And you've kept your promises. God, would we, would we sing those? Would we praise you, as Eric talked about earlier? Would we shout it from the rooftops? When we are, as the song we're about to sing says, when we are poor and powerless, that in those places, God, we would look for you, that you would redeem us, that you would resurrect us, uh, that you would make good on the promises you've made to us, and that we would experience your grace. God, we thank you that you are a God who does not stay far off, but that you pakad, that you come close and you visit us. May we experience you and put our faith and trust in you in Jesus' name. Amen.